0: All right, everyone, welcome to today's roundtable on winning with non dilutive financing and revenue-based financing in particular. Today, we are privileged to have with us quite a cool panel. We've got Gilles de Malbosque, Chief Investment Officer at Harmony Family Office. He, of course, brings a wealth of knowledge about how and LP thinks about this uh, asset class. Then we've got Bailey Morrow, Managing Director of HSBC Innovation Banking. He is going to give us the viewpoint of, of course, a large bank active in this space. Then we've got Himal Fraser-Rawal, general partner at White Star Capital. He is a GP with White Star, as I just said, and is running a hybrid fund strategy there. So that's going to be quite interesting. I think that's something that we've been missing in the European venture ecosystem for quite a while. So very, very uh, interested to hear more from him and hope you'll enjoy that as well. And then finally, we have Benjamin Reeder, founder and CEO of Levenue, who's bringing in into the European ecosystem, a completely new model or something that at least we haven't had enough of it in my perspective, which is revenue based financing. Um, So Benjamin, maybe let's start with you and I'll ask you to give us a good first overview of how you think about the state of of revenue based financing and also, of course, the the broader category of non diluted financing in Europe.
1: I think traditionally there were um... There were two main sources of alternative financing or non-equity financing. The first one being banks. Banks typically give non-diluting financing, uh, most cases under, under the form of, of loans, either secured or unsecured. There's also alternative financing or non dilutive financing coming from governments. I think both that, those very big groups of, of entities are very well known for everyone to be not the most innovative players in in markets. Well, governments, I mean, grants are a way for any company to to get additional funding, but it's a very tedious process. And in most cases, it's very, very specific for a very certain reason or for a very specific reason. Banks do loans. Banks can do factoring. Factoring, in my opinion, has been one of the, the, the very good things for growing companies to to get working capital in the big issue w- with factoring in today's world is that as clientele of any company is is globalizing a lot, understanding the credit worthiness of the clients of the company getting financed is becoming way more difficult. Plus, it doesn't fit the new the new types of business models. Now, I think that brought us to a, a an innovation in terms of other sources of alternative financing. I think we can start with venture debt, which was focused on, on those companies that probably had harder times getting finance through the traditional s- sources of alternative financing by specifically those people who were very focused on helping this type of company getting finance. in most cases, VCs, that said, okay, guys, there is a piece of equity that we can do. We know where you're sitting at. We understand that you wanna you wanna grow into a next valuation. We can provide you guys with venture debt. Now, the, the thing with venture debt is is, is that it, it it works, it's it's been used quite a lot, but it has a dilutive aspect to it. That is number one. And the second thing is that in a market where money becomes a lot more expensive than it was. In a market where VC funds have less, have less dry powder, or at least have less discretional ways of, of of allocating their capital, that that seems to be a source that dries up, which brings us to the to the more niche and more focused ways of alternative focus uh, of of alternative financing, and in my opinion, that is where the market is evolving to. Uh, the market is evolving to these very specific tailored products that really fit into the entire capital stack or the entire financing stack of, of companies.
0: This is, of course, where you guys come in with revenue and, 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 and revenue-based financing. So I saw Himal doing some notes when you talked about, <laughs> about venture debt. So we'll get into that in, in just a second. But I wanted, wanted to just get you to, to outline how revenue-based financing is different
1: and, and, and who it serves well and who it serves less well than me. Revenue-based financing started out as something for e-commerce companies. So basically based on all the, I think the big innovation here was a lot of the data going through or a lot of the financial data that you need in an underwriting process, especially for an e-commerce platform sits on these digital platforms, right? So you can pull it in, you can do an analysis on it and you can make a very good assumption on what's going to happen on the short term. And it made a lot of sense for e-commerce companies as they needed capital to buy stock or as they needed capital to buy, to, to, to invest in marketing. So from a legal point of view, what they basically said is, look, let's take the revenues coming in, claim those as a collateral in the financing, and we'll, we'll go ahead and try and, 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 and use that. So that's, that's where it started. We shifted the industry at least. We, we went to what we knew best, which was software as a service companies as a starter. And then the broader point of view, recurring revenue based financing or recurring revenue based company. Sorry. A business model that is the everything subscription, everything as a subscription is a business model that is expanding all over the world. I mean, every, every, every company suddenly has something as a subscription. So, so it made a lot of sense for us to try and use that dynamic in terms of evolving business models and try and grab a piece of cash flows that are linked to subscriptions to use as the underlying collateralization of financing and if, if, if you look at a lot of these startups scale-ups even bigger companies that have a recurring revenue model one of their biggest issues one of their biggest challenges is their customer acquisition cost it's in most cases capital that they need to deploy to convince clients to start using their, their, their services. And then they start getting paid on a monthly basis. A lot of business models, it takes three, four, sometimes even five months before that initial marketing investment to get a client on board is paid back. And that is a very, a very difficult thing to finance. Now, if you go out, and you can tell a, an investor to front you the next 12 months, because from a statistical point of view, you can prove that most clients stay longer than those five months or longer than those 12 months. And then suddenly, whenever you have a new client, you basically get a year, a year of money up front that you can then reinvest as working capital in your business. And I think that's the, that's the entire IV where uh, revenue where is built around.
0: Gilles, if I could bring you in here, because when, when we spoke the other day, I think you had the perspective of the capital provider in mind, right? So maybe you could share that with us, um, because I think that's relevant to bring in. And I think there's, there are definitely some, let's call it strength stuff, revenue-based financing over others, where you sit on the capital stack and everything. So, so maybe you could dive into that. And then after that, I want to contrast RBF to what I know that Bailey and Hamal works a lot with, which is venture debt.
2: Yeah, I'm going to talk from an investor point of view, because I don't know all the technicalities uh, as Benjamin does, but I love RBF as an investor. I've been investing for our clients in all sorts of alternative investment vehicles, the really weird ones sometimes, you know, uh, niche ones. So when I came across RBF, I thought, hey, I've got a Invest our clients' money in in that strategy, and uh, but the problem is I had to go on onto the platform every month, and I can't really do that for several clients to you know to collect the coupon and reinvest it. So I was looking for uh, an investment fund, and uh, the, the the problem is there is none. So uh... before before going into that, could you could you
0: just explain to me why us an MFO looked at this strategy and said. This is convincing to me, this makes sense for okay me. Uh,
2: you know it's just the same reason why we invested in uh, in a it 's got nothing to do with it but but actually yes, a private equity fund which finances accountants, and why did we invest in such a fund because it's it's easy to guess where turnover is going to be in a year or, or or even three years time because revenue turnover is very stable in those in this sector. And same thing with uh, with RBF. If I have enough visibility on the companies I'm in, I, I, I'm, I'm considering, which is the case with uh, platforms like Levenue because they allow investors to see. What, what's the revenues been for the last 12, 12 months? What's the churn rate? What's, you know, all sort of KPIs. And historically, investors have never had any, as much visibility as they have with those uh, platforms. So I, I like the fact that I know everything that's going on in the company, whatever the storytelling of the CEO is, uh, because I have the, the, the raw data. Uh, because leven is connected to all the apis of the company of the bank of the accountant etc so it's very reconforting for uh, investors and I like the fact just as with the accountants I like the fact that i I, I can guess pretty well what what the turnover is going to be uh, within 12 months so that for this key thing the the the, the fact that risk is Absolutely minimize because yes, every time I assess a strategy, I I only work on risk really, and then performance takes care of itself. But risk is really low in that strategy. That's why I really like it. Could I bring you in, Hamal? Because
0: last time we spoke, we, we spoke a bit about risk as well, and 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 I know that you you love the venture debt strategy because you're seeing you're seeing that you get a a, a good risk reward ratio there. Uh, so could you, could you touch on both risk, but also how you see venture debt and RBF playing together? Is, is, is RBF, what from the RBF toolbox do you use versus, versus not?
3: If you look back over the, the sort of over history in, in Europe and how funding has evolved, you know, in 2010, you had two venture debt players. That's well, perhaps three. That's probably about it. And over the course of the last 14, 15 years, you've started to see more and more different types of alternative finance come into the market, including venture debt, but others, revenue based financing and, 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 and others, other forms as well. Having said that, you know, the, the market is still dominated by equity. right? The, you know, I think it's something like 5 to 10% of the cap, capital mix of companies raising capital is really alternative or, or venture debt. Having said that, we sort of look at risk-reward. In Europe in particular, the types of companies that have taken revenue-based financing to date have typically been very, very small. So earlier stage businesses at sort of Seed Series A, who have started to win their sort of earlier stage contracts, typically in the software space or some sort of recurring space, have opted to take a little bit of revenue-based financing rather than equity at an early stage to prevent dilution. Now. As the companies have matured and, and sort of grown up a little bit, they've raised more equity and they've started to look at different types of funding sources, including venture debt, including growth capital, including hybrid capital. And it starts to become more sort of tailored to them as businesses start to become bigger, because the types of financing you start to, or the structures you're starting to put into these businesses, start to work with the specific need of finance, not just, look, I need some capital to extend my runway. Let's sort of sell down 30 to 40% 40 of my revenue. We need something for specific purposes. And that's why we'll try and fund these things with, with with pieces of venture debt or private capital or whatever, what have you. So when it comes to risk reward, it, it, it sort of depends. And I know it's uh, the sort of um, the the, the, the sort of cop-out answer, but it, it, it's not meant to be. I think it, it depends upon the company. It depends upon the stage. It depends upon what they're trying to finance. And also depends upon how much they're trying to finance. Because I guess one of the leaders in what you know, perhaps Benjamin has done in the world, in Pipe. right? Pipe has started in the US and has grown and grown and grown and grown, typically in software and recurring revenue businesses. And only recently have they started to go into the world where you know they're financing post-series B companies and beyond. So it started very, very early. Risk-reward, I think, earlier stage company, higher risk, irrespective of what product you use. Late stage companies, in theory, should be less risk. But Again, you've got to judge that subject to the company and the time.
0: I was on my way to pass it to you, Bailey, but then I saw Ben <laughs> shaking his head and nodding a little bit here. So I, I think I need to bring Ben in to, <laughs> to, to give a rebuttal, maybe.
1: Yeah, I don't need a rebuttal because, in all honesty, I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm agreeing with what Hamal is saying. Companies need a variableized. Capital stack, and they need to find the right ways of financing for the right thing they need to do. And it's true. I mean, most of these earlier stage companies, although just in between brackets, I think what we see on our platform today is a way broader range, and it really goes up to companies doing tens of millions, not say even hundreds of millions of euros in, in recurring revenue. But that's 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 a different topic. They need to take the right type of financing and for them, the only, as a founder or as an entrepreneur, the only question that you have to ask yourself is what is my best cost of capital. And for anything equity, that's a hard, that's a very difficult calculation to me. What is the cost of capital of taking on a VC that will sit with me for the next seven years. You only say that when you're using that, when you're going to use that capital specifically for long-term investments that will really boost your, your, your valuation or whatever sits there. So that's, that, that's the thing. And what I think one of the issues right now is that an entrepreneur sits there. He wants to do stuff and he wants to allocate the capital that he, he gets in the best way possible, but he only has two options. So the capital, these seed and Series A and even Series B and entrepreneurs raise true equity for which they get diluted, they use it for marketing which is a purely working capital kind of expense, basically, that you can finance in a way better way. And then if you go to the other side of the table, I mean, you being a VC, not knowing, not having the money that you invest in a company, of which you became a shareholder, go to marketing expenses is probably not the right way. You'd rather have those guys like work on, on, on actual IP because in the long run, that's where you're going to get the value out of. But if you go in as an investor and you have like the highest, you claim a piece of the top line of those companies that yes, they're risky. Yes. They're probably still like most, most of the companies that get financed through our platform are either not yet profitable or just became profitable. So giving money to that type of company is definitely high risk. But if you can claim the highest level of, of their, of their income statement, And use that as a collateral for what you're doing the risk goes down and everyone is helped because you you give the entrepreneur a product a financing product that is tailored to what he needs it for and you give the investor something that yes he's giving he's he's financing risky companies but it's de-risked by the way it's designed and i think If you ask me where we're going to stand 10 years from now, that's where we're going to be. There's going to be a whole suite of products, a whole suite of different financing products that tailor both the needs of the entrepreneurs. Why will they need this money? And on the other side, tailor the needs of the investors thinking about, okay, how do we try and balance out risk rewards?
0: Could I ask you, Bailey, to take us through the business case from the founder's perspective as you see it? And I think if you start up where you're, you know, on your home turf, and then afterwards we can go to Himal and, and Ben and Gilles to, to kind of give us the perspectives of the other parts of, uh, of the non-dilutive instruments.
4: Sure. So when I was thinking about this from a founder's perspective, from a traditional funding view, I guess most founders have historically only had two options, right? I think you bootstrap. So you potentially use your own capital and you grow very slowly. It's very, very difficult. And, you know, I guess really a, a tough path to take, but probably that you, might, you might come out with a better business model because you're very focused on bottom line, something that scales probably very efficiently and effectively, but it's just going to take a really long time. So that's probably the, the very traditional piece. I would argue that, you know, the counter argument to that now is that non-dilutive capital of some sort would really be able to help you grow faster and free up working capital. So exactly what Benjamin was talking about, you, you know exactly where you want to invest, you know exactly what the ROI is going to be. And non-delative capital for someone who's bootstrapped is a great option. I think coming back to what Hamel said, the only option most other founders have is to look at equity. And so I was kind of thinking about, you know, what are some of the, I guess, less attractive parts of, of equity, you know, to, to be honest, and then how can non-delative capital kind of counteract those? And I had a couple. Um, but I think what I'll pick up on is what is what Benjamin was talking about, is that equity doesn't support working capital or specific investments when you have a clear ROI. It is generally to ensure the business creates more value to attract future funding at a higher valuation, period. And so I think non-dilutive capital, and, and Benjamin and I are going to agree completely on this, is amazing when you know if you put a dollar in or a pound in, you get two back, you shouldn't be using equity. Heads nodding here, we can agree on that. So I think that's a really interesting way to complement equity for debt and how to have a blended capital stack there. I think you know non-dilutive can also help in a couple other ways. It's less time consuming these days right? We're hearing equity takes six to 12 months to raise. Most lenders can either get something very, very quickly if it's revenue-based, right? Almost instantly, or a little bit longer if you're a lender like us, maybe a couple of weeks up to a month to get funding, you know, much probably more time effective than going out to raise equity in this market. Um, a couple other things, you know, equity comes with a board of directors, non capital doesn't. Um, yes, there is a warrant component, but we don't sit on boards. We don't have voting rights. So you are getting a partner that is just on a long-term journey with you with kind of no say or voting in the matter, which for an, for a founder could be very attractive, right? Your head's down trying to execute on a plan. Sometimes there's too many cooks in the kitchen. So, you know, we can help with that because we, you know, we're kind of in the restaurant. We're waiting for what's coming out We're not necessarily <laughs> um, making a sausage there. The so maybe the last one I will just touch on really quickly is the impact to the cap table. So there's a, a wide span of non, non-dilutive, I'm putting it in quotes because... Venture debt is minimally dilutive. So we can touch on that really quickly. You know, typically venture debt lenders are taking less than 1% of ownership in a business. So if you think a typical series A takes 15 to 20% of your cap table and venture debt takes one, that's pretty compelling. So it isn't fully non-dilutive, but it's minimally dilutive. So if you're thinking about cap table management, that's an option. And then you've got, you know, once you kind of can attract working capital, those tend to swap out a warrant for a covenant. So now you truly are non-dilutive. Or you look at something like revenue base, which doesn't take a covenant. So I think there's lots of ways that non-deleterive capital can help ease some of the burden of equity, which is which has historically been the most traditional source of financing. But I do agree with sort of the sentiment in that the group here, which is blended capital stacks, are probably the way forward. And we work a lot with VCs to make sure the equity is only used for value accretive investments and you know potentially moonshots to really push a company forward. And we try to chip away at. Day to day operations, whether that's leaning into supporting inventory or recurring revenue or marketing spend, we've got or you know equipment financing, we've got everything. But we can all probably agree on this call that's not the best use of very very expensive equity.
3: I, I just sort of yeah pick up on a couple of things that you said, but broad, broadly agree. I think you know w- when we look at things like warrants and trading out a warrant for a covenant mm-hmm. again, it, it all comes back to risk reward, right? It all comes back to you know, I'm, I'm putting a warrant here at an early stage because fundamentally, I need to get paid more for the risk. And you would typically find that businesses that grow to a certain stage, once they're a bit more mature, they can actually service and keep to a covenant. Because that, having worked at a bank, having worked in a fund where there were covenants and there were no covenants, it's one of those things where at the bank, I probably weighed more covenants than anything else because most companies, even mature companies, could not stick to covenants. And they are quite difficult to, and, and can, in my experience, be pretty difficult and onerous on companies to, to to weather. So that's why a lot of funds and banks now have sort of resourced the fact that they'll take warrants on, on, on things versus uh, introduce a covenant. That said, you know, again, we talk about blending the cap stack and, and, and so on and so forth. You know, what we do with hybrid capital, which is, you know, a relatively newish landscape in, in Europe, but has you know, been around in, in, in the US for, for many, many years. Starting with a piece of credit, we walk into companies offer a loan, and we have the ability to assist that business in putting in a junior piece of capital thereafter, whether it be a convertible loan note to assist and turbocharge the growth of the company, so that they are actually being able to blend debt and equity instruments through one investor. And so this can be quite compelling, especially if you're thinking about risk-reward, because putting in a credit facility first and foremost allows this company to grow with less dilutive capital, should we say. And then thereafter, just before they're trying to raise an equity round, if we have enough conviction and the company's performing, and we have KPIs and all that sort of stuff and and evidence to suggest that the business is doing well, they can get a piece of very, very well-priced equity as well into these companies to, to charge growth. I think Going away and, and simply sort of try not to and to avoid equity is, is probably not the right way companies should be going because equity will be required irrespective in this market.
0: What Himal of course, describes here is, is that they can do both. They have a hybrid in their model. You building with Lavenue or Platform, how do you typically see the financings come together? Does it come together as a mix where, where it's then partly Lavenue capital that comes in and then at the same time, first or whoever comes in as, as an equity investor in that same round, or, or how, how's the dynamic working on your platform?
1: It's a very good question, and I think it's very case dependent, right? Um, you can have a bootstraps entrepreneur that really understands his metrics and is more than happy with just revenue-based financing to go and find the growth that he actually sees sitting there. Now, that's an exception. There's not that many that go that, way, that route. Most of the companies on our platform have equity investors on board have raised money through equity. We don't see that much venture debt because there's a there's a little bit of a of a of an of, of an overlaying like who 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 can claim what at what point what we actually what we really believe in is is for if there's something that we try and do as much as we can towards the entrepreneurs trying to get finance through our platform is telling them guys we're just A very small portion within your capital stack. You have to use us for this very specific reason, and that's short-term working capital. That's what we are good in. And there's a whole lot of different players um, that can help you with the with the other pieces of 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 your capital stack. So that is number one. Second of all, I think eighty percent of the companies that get financing through our platform because we we say no to a lot of companies coming on. 80% 80% of those who get financed come sent through other types of financiers. That is the, I think, in my opinion, the the proof point that people do see us as just in addition to what they've done, and it makes sense within 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 it within, within a larger story. And maybe to end my, my my answer on on that question, yeah, it's really cool to have someone who can go into your equity and will also give you some venture that and might even throw in another type of loan at the end of the things when everything is going well, that's fine. And I think from an investor's point of view, it makes a lot of sense because it gives like, it's a big toolbox that you can use and try and get as much, as much yield out of an investment of a a good relationship. So that it makes sense from an investor's point of view, from an entrepreneur's point of view. I mean, the cool thing about what we do is we are a marketplace. You will always get connected to the, cheapest cost of capital because there is there is a a competitive auction that goes on on your financing so from an entrepreneurial point of view it's probably a less expensive part like or or a less expensive way of doing it now on the other side i mean having a relationship with someone who can give you a whole different an entire scope of different ways of financing is also a benefit because that means you only have one person to talk to and they can help you optimize as, as, as good as it is. So I, I think both, both models work, but what where I see us sitting there is just like this little small niche for the short-term uh, working capital, which is a big issue, by the way. It's a huge market, but it's a super small piece of the, of the capital stack within these types of companies.
4: We actually have this great saying in our bank when we talk about debt, which I think just maybe sums this up really nicely, is that we want to complement equity, not replace it. I think fundamentally that's where we go into every conversation because it is very often, especially in this environment, we get founders coming to us because they can't raise equity. And that, that's a very, very different risk profile than complementing a business that has already proven that it can raise equity and has shored up the balance sheet with liquidity to get through this period of time. So I think that's just really important. It seems like we're all agreeing on that concept That it's kind of just a short and sweet way to sort of say it.
1: You're 100% right. That I think one of the big issues though, over the last couple of years, there was so much equity capital available that it became, in a lot of entrepreneurial mindsets, it became the way to go. And people didn't think about, it was basically so easy to raise so much money through equity that people didn't think about how do I diversify my capital stack. How, how do I choose the right financing for the right like thing that I want to do with the money that I'm raising? And that is changing right now. So I, I think if if there's something we should all do is go out there and tell entrepreneurs and and, and people working in in the finance departments of all these growing companies is exactly this. Like, guys, think about where you're getting. It.
3: I'd fully agree with that point as well. And I think the I think the the, the follow on point to make is that. Equity markets, whether it be venture capital or private equity, have evolved tremendously over the last 20, 30 years. Unfortunately, venture debt has not. And uh, and that's why you have things like alternatives like RBF, you have hybrid capital, et cetera, where you know, it's not the same thing over and over and over again where they're trying to fit their square product into your round hole versus – what an entrepreneur nowadays requires in Europe is something different, something that works with their cash flow or their revenue makeup, something that tailors a piece of funding that is different to equity to their business model for them to grow. And you have it in the US. And this is why a lot of it, the issues in Europe stem from creativity, but also you know having investors like Gilles, you know, and, and hands off for, for you to, to, to back alternatives like uh, RBF, because... You know, and, and and some of our investors who have got hybrid capital who are willing to do something new and, and and sort of go into these these products that will ultimately i think win uh, in a long term. but
1: it, but it is something Hammada is changing really quickly i mean it is
3: the the number of
1: blue chip banks that I've seen in the last four weeks is just impressive and and they're all they're all understanding this and they're all seeing that from their way of looking things or the way they're connected to their end clients, the, the ones look, the companies looking for financing, the, there is just too much opacity within that process. So the, the, the reason why those guys are interested in what, what people like us are doing is, is, is because they see the need, but they're still, they're thinking about like, how, how are we going to get there? And what's the best way for us to do and having people like Gilles who, who basically show them the light, telling them, guys, it's doable this works is, is indeed the heads of for Gilles and people like Gilles.
0: One of our pioneering mission at, at, at EUVC is getting more capital to our ecosystem. And I, and I think Benjamin just, just made a small commercial for you here. What do you say when you say to your clients and to your partners and, and so on, when you talk about RBF and debt financing to, to, to the more startup
2: ecosystem? You're not going to like it because I speak an uh, an investor language. I don't speak uh, an entrepreneur language. So I just I just talk about risk all the time. The risk of losing one's money. Every time I, I talk about an asset class, I I talk about probabilities of losing money during the next uh, 2008 crisis. Private equities is here. Then there are uh, yeah, private credit. And then to me, RBF is down there with uh, trade finance and everything. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I always talk about risk. It's a bit boring, but it's, uh, it's the way and, I am.
0: And why do, why do you place RBF there and credit here and venture there?
2: It's just looking at the data. Uh, default rates, ruin, risk of ruin, private equity. Obviously, when you're, uh, when you're a shareholder of a company which defaults, uh, everyone is going to be paid. Before you are uh, eventually reimbursed, so you're at the end of the uh, of the queue, so you you your probability of losing money is higher than the guy who is getting paid first. And who is get, who is getting paid first here? It's RBF because it's not even a, we're talking about lending, but it's not lending. It's it, it's buying future revenues, so you you're getting paid first before everybody. So it makes risk lower, and and plus. When I invest in private equity, I know 60% of what's going on, 50 to 80% of what's going on in the company. When I invest in RBF, I, I have the raw data. It's, uh, as I said, historically, it's uh, unprecedented, I think. I don't know. Anyway, I love it. I'm a quant investor, as I was telling you the other day. I, 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 so I love it because I can see the raw data, uh, do my own KPIs, with the 11, you guys, and uh, and so that's, and, and then I get paid first. So yeah, risk is the lowest to me here. So that's why I like it.
3: I actually put some sort of some numbers behind some of what um, Gilles is saying, because from a standpoint of us, we've been raising money, and uh, unfortunately, we've, we've, we've turned into investor speak for a lot of, <laughs> for, for a lot of time as well. So to, to convince people, look, this is why you earned this. Post the G- GFC Zanisbeid crisis, if you read some of the Water data, and by the way, first and foremost, getting data in private markets and loss rates in private markets is super difficult. It, it's not readily available at the public markets. It's not always published. Um, you know, U.S. BDCs tend to have data because they're, they're listed, so they have to. But unfortunately, it's, it's very hard to get accurate data all the time. But Water tends to produce some good stuff. 3.71% is the gross loss rate across the um, private credit space. Now, if you go into the era of cheap money that we like to call it, where banks and, and central banks was printing money between, what, 2012 to 2021, mm-hmm. the sort of loss rates were around 1%. And now we've gone into a turmoil, the, the period of where we call the end of cheap money, sort of 2022 onwards, we are still hovering at loss rates in private credit at circa 1%. And, and this is sort of masked by the fact that Private equity, venture capital, and others have continued to support their existing portfolio of companies with dry powder. And what we're not seeing right now, and we won't see probably for the next two or three quarters, is that dry powder completely stop and fundamentally companies allowed to fail. So, you know, if you look at the sort of cyclicality of, of, of the economy and how companies tend to fail, you know, we are starting, we, you know, it feels as though we're coming to this point, sort of where we were, sort of 2010, where you start to see the loss rates peak again because of, you know, the inflation and, and, and the higher interest rates and, and, and subsequent that happened. But where I was going with this is it's all well and good when we're talking about loss rates, but where you stand in the cap structure is vitally important. So, like RPF, if you're, if you're the first one out, then the likelihood of you getting your money back is pretty high, uh, assuming you're back in the right company and you can sell it down, etc. But same with it. But it, it's not so different with the likes of venture debt or growth capital or hybrid capital, because most of the time, unless you are sharing that security with somebody else, you typically are top of the cap stack. So if you're top of the cap stack, you control. And on the on the whole, in the event something were to go wrong, and touch wood none of these things do. But if it were. On the whole, you are out first as well, so it's 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 a trait of private credit that that is pretty attractive to most. But fundamentally, I think overall in the market, loss rates for private credit or alternative finance like this, where you are sitting at the top of the cap stack, tends to be lower than, than than the private equity world.
1: To add on top of that, I mean, I do agree. I think we're it's it's all sitting there like you're in terms of risk, and especially in a moment where stuff might go wrong or in a, in, a, in a period in, in, in time uh, that we're living through, I think, uh, where stuff might go wrong. Sitting, sitting there rather than in the equity is probably a good idea. I don't, I don't want to be the, the analyst at any VC fund that has to recalculate the valuations of their entire portfolios, because that is probably a pretty, a pretty uh, negative task to be working on right now. And, and it's going to continue going. From a timing point of view, the people that go into RBF, and I'm talking very specifically our our product is very short term. So an investor that invests in a company through, through revenue based financing sits there for 12 months, he gets paid back on a monthly basis, one of, twelfth of, of his investment and is connected as as Gilles said, to the most crucial databases or the most granular databases. So there is a very good visibility on what is happening. So, in in term in times of turmoil, this is a very interesting product for an investor. I mean, it's always short term, whereas in venture that yes, you're probably very connected as well. I mean, you know what is happening, uh, probably not twenty four seven, but you know what is happening. The thing is, you're sitting there mostly for a longer term, right? And when stuff starts going down, it's very hard to pull out. Well, the, the the timing of RBF is is, is a little bit different, so. And and there yet again, I mean it's the same thing as on the entrepreneurial side. An investor also has to diversify its their portfolio and they can have exposure to earlier stage tech on a very short term kind of thing through, through through RBF, which will yield less than through the like middle thing that, that can be ventured at. And then they, they will also diversify a portion in, in, in private equity and just, just have that. Probably give them higher returns if they're if they're in it for, for a long enough period of time.
0: Can I ask you, Bailey? Maybe you can go on go at this. If you're investing in this space, thinking about it, what are the profiles of this underlying assets that you'll be investing in? Meaning, if I gave Himal money or Bailey money or or, or Ben money where would that money end up what type of companies what do they look like that kind of thing what are you funding with it
4: for us we we start with venture backed so that's a pretty critical part that's our first criteria the reason being and it was touched on earlier a lot of things are going to go wrong within the life of our loan and we accept that but we accept that because we have open communication with the board members around the table that's mission critical and and we all know this the, the venture ecosystem is very much so based on relationships and so that that's probably our first criteria. Our second, and I totally agree with what, what Hemmel said. I'm not sure we're fully through the the, you know, potential winter coming uh, the, of lack of capital. I think we are really looking and come back to this term, complement equity, not replace it. We are we need our companies to already have a fully funded plan. So we're not taking any what we would call kind of cash out risk. And so that will hopefully get us through. And we've been very prudent, get us in the company through probably what's coming in the next 12 months. That's the second piece I think that's really critical. And that comes back to, you know, what we were talking about before on risk. You know, we, we don't take cash out risk. If we did, we would get paid like an investor. So we have to thread that needle very closely in that, you know, we really shouldn't be providing more than six, maybe max 12 months of, of runway or else we need to take more ownership in a business because that has just completely changed our risk profile. So there is a lot that we're doing in terms of the timing and the availability of debt and the economics we take. I think the last thing, which probably very similar in KPIs have been mentioned, we pay a lot of attention to KPIs. Our companies report monthly to us and they report you know, not, not only financials, but also business metrics. And we are watching trends. You know, we do a lot in different verticals and all of us have vertical expertise. So for example, we talked a lot about consumer. You know, My team on consumer, we're looking at you know, LTV to CAC, we're looking at retention, we're looking at cohort analysis. You know, we're pretty sophisticated in terms of what we need. The good news is they're already reporting that for their board because they're very sophisticated lenders. And we then can, can piggyback off that to ensure that we are always, you know, well ahead of a potential bump in the road. So those are probably the three things in general that maybe just the last thing I'll say is we always have this kind of last check, which is sort of a, I don't know, we call it a gut feeling. And, and everyone has, I think investors say this too, you, you are picking a partner to work with for four years as a lender, as a venture debt lender. We have to have open communication we have to have trust they have to understand what they are entering into you know and what this partnership is going to be like so we spend a lot of time getting to know the founders and the management team and meet you the cfo to really ensure that you know we feel like that's something that we want to be a part of and then you know also to that to that point the investors you know we we don't lend to companies when they have any cap table we're very specific Because again, being able to pick up the phone in this kind of rocky environment is mission critical to get out of tough situations or to help companies manage through them. I
3: wholly sort of agree with the fact that when you come on as a sort of long-term growth capital provider or a lender, a relationship is very important. In particular, it's very important when things aren't going so well because actually a very, very good lender is not somebody that just sits there, gives you a loan and says, thank you very much. I'll see you in, in three or four years. Actually, it's somebody that's involved in your business um, because the more involved they are the more data they have the more at the table they are the more likely they're going to be a partner with you to help you navigate a difficult time now I appreciate you know just like in any industry not everyone's created equal and there have been some pretty historical um, bad examples of this from from lenders and others in the past but an entrepreneur selecting who they want to work with, is, is vital because that partner could actually be very, very helpful to that business or not. And to give an example about that is, you know, where we come in, we like to sit on the board as an, as an observer. So one of the things that we do, and going back to Gilles' point, we like to be data-driven. We like to get data. Um, whilst we don't get it, like the, uh, like the great APIs that, that Benjamin will have in real time, we will have them, as Bailey mentioned, on a monthly basis. The investor reporting that comes around, not just financial as KPI, et cetera, but also when you're sat at the board as an observer, you hear things, you talk about things that you probably don't pick up through an API. You understand certain things that are going on around that table where you can actively support the business, whether it be by more funding, whether it be by introducing uh, another uh, sort of customer to the business. But more so than that, as businesses get to a point where they're going to outgrow my capital, because I've been around for longer than I wish to uh, to, to, to let people know, you, you tend to know who your next partner is going to be to take you to that next level. And making sure you introduce those people is, is, is pretty key from a network uh, effect as well. So, you know, Agree with what Bailey said, but uh, there, are, there are additional bits as to, to to or advantages of being there front and center alongside the investors, alongside the company, um to, to help that company grow.
1: Yeah, and I, I can I cannot agree more. I mean, if if you're in there for the long term, even if it's not true equity but through a longer term loan, it makes sense to sit there. And I think what what we kind of hope for is that our APIs pick up the pick up the positive trend that people like you bring in, in, in into those rooms. Maybe to to touch upon the APIs though, I, I think one of the big changes that our industry is gonna go through is is that data collection. I mean, there I mean historically there's been a lot of fraud, but fraud stories being told to equity investors, stories being told to to banks, the way and again I I know that when your analysis is very short term, which ours is, it's super easy to only base yourself on the data. There is an additional portion that has to kick in that is, is can't, can't be uh, digitized and needs to be human every time. But I, I do believe that in terms of, it, especially in a, in, a, in a moment where risk is probably going to become more important, having connections to all these databases and crunching that data to get your own view of where, where a company is sitting is actually going to help the entire capital stack to become cheaper for an entrepreneur because risk will be way better understood, short but short term, and I think that's something that we are proving on short term. Uh, but it will, I, I believe it will evolve over the longer term financing as well.
0: Now, guys, we're coming up on time, so I want to just because the the title of of, of our whole conversation here, of course, winning with non dilutive funding instruments. And for that reason, I want to go around the table here and ask you, how is it that you win with non-dilutive funding strategies? Wh- what is it that your strategy looks like? Where is it that you're different from others? And we've been through it somewhat, but I think we can really summarize it here in the end for everyone to understand where you fit in the, in the stack and, and, and how, how are you different from others? And I think, Himal, let's start with you.
3: We've sort of touched upon this already, as you rightly say. So, look, what, what do we provide? We provide sort of hybrid growth capital, and that's that's fundamentally a credit-led strategy, but allows entrepreneurs uh, to effectively blend uh, different types of asset classes. So, historically, we talked about in Europe, you either have debt or you have equity; you don't have it in between. And entrepreneurs are led to choose between whether we take the debt at this time or whether we take the equity at this time. Over our time in in working with some of the best entrepreneurs across Europe, we've realized that sophistication about how companies wish to raise money has evolved. And it has to come into our world as well, because businesses require different types of capital to fund different types of activity. So what we do, or how we are different, is we provide a sort of, I want to say, one-stop solution to, to an entrepreneur, to a, to a company that is a series B and beyond. So our, our product is sort of very much more sort of towards the maturer end of the sort of venture back world of a credit-led piece of financing, which goes into the business. We come in, we sit alongside the investors at the table, work with the business, and we want to eventually make an equity investment in that business. So why is that a good thing? Well, fundamentally, the businesses or the entrepreneurs have the ability to run the business further with less dilutive capital, first and foremost, to grow their top line, to grow their their unit economics, to improve them, and to fundamentally improve their equity valuation. So we build value using the, the less dilutive capital. Why then would they want to choose to take a little bit of junior capital from us, whether it be a convertible loan note, structured equity, or even pure play equity, where we join another round? It's because it helps them effectively bring in another six to 12 months of further equity run or cash runway for them to continue to grow that top line, to continue to increase their equity value whilst they're going to raise another equity round or drive to profitability. And one of the important things is we don't want to sit there becoming a, you know, a, a lead equity investor. That's not our model. We, we don't come in to say, hey, look, you know, we're going to price this round, et cetera, et cetera. If we have enough conviction in the numbers, we have enough conviction in the growth, and we have enough conviction in the management team running that company, we're able to put a little bit of equity into that business alongside the existing investors or an incoming investor to really blend the capital uh, stack that they have and fundamentally the cost of capital. So it tends to work. We've done it a few times. It's worked very, very well. And 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 hopefully it provides an alternative to traditional pure play debt and traditional equity. Uh, and that's how we see ourselves positioned in the European market.
0: I think, Bailey, I'll go to you because you're probably uh, uh, the natural next uh, to take it up after him. I'll...
4: Sure. So I would say, you know, for us, think one way we win is probably just being very, very laser focused. HSBC innovation banking is... Ex Silicon Valley Bank, and we've always just been laser laser focused on one part of the market, which is venture backed Series A through pre IPO companies only. So part of it is just being a very good lender and doing, you know, the right thing for the right set of companies with the right structure. And I think that's something that we've done, you know, historically very well, and, and want to continue. A couple of the things I think that we do is coming back to partnering with VCs. So that's really critical. So knowing who's around the capital stack and being able to you know, be a part of that um, is really critical. I think we also start small and grow over time. I think it's really, really important for companies, especially when it's your first time taking on debt to only take on what a company can manage. We also don't want to over leverage too early. So we start small and we grow alongside a company. So we only are lending what they can handle and what they can service. That's really important. There's a lot of lenders throwing out a lot of money, especially, you know, back in the last couple of years. And that's not a Strategy we've ever taken, so we're very we're very specific on that. And the third, I think, you know, to everyone's point earlier, we're we're really creative. Venture debt is one of ten to fifteen products my my team can do. So you know, venture debt's a great early stage product to start with. You get to learn know the company. You just give them flexible capital, but that should evolve very quickly if the company can manage it into working capital. So recurring revenue lines, inventory, you know, CAC financing, equipment financing, cash flow lending, syndicated loans. There's no Cap to what a large bank can do, I think, which is some one of the benefits of of us is that we just can we can scale through an IPO and beyond.
0: I think the natural step is go to RBF and 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 Lavadu, and then we end on deals because then deals can tell us about how how he thinks about this from the from the top of the stack, if so, if I can put it like that.
1: I think we've touched most most of these things and. We are a small part of any capital stack in, of, of the companies that we go to. That's our niche. And we want to do that as good as we can, I think, because of the way we've technologically set up this, 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 this product and that, that goes in understanding risk in the cheapest way possible uh, by, by not putting humans in between, but by, letting, by, by analyzing risk, by just connecting to the data and, and crunching that data on, on machines by making sure that any financing that goes through our platform goes through an auction process, which ensures the best pricing uh, for the, for the cost of the capital in again, in our very niche is why for short-term working capital, I think platforms like ours are probably the best way forward for, for, for companies that fall within our scope and and on the investor side, because it's also important. I mean, Yes, if you want to have exposure to to early stage technology or earlier stage technology, same thing. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of different options as as we've mentioned over the last hour. And if you want to diversify your portfolio, there's different ways. And I think through through a product like ours, again, you hit a very specific niche, but you get pretty good good yields on a very short-term investment that gives you access to this technology boom or booming business of technology but but it can only and it will always be only a very small piece of of your portfolio
0: now Gils, tell us a bit about the that piece of por- piece of your portfolio and how you think about it where on and feel free to go a bit broader as well and, and tell us about how it fits into your whole allocation strategy
2: One thing about what Benjamin just said uh, and we never talked about, it's the the fact that uh, uh, RBF is uh, 99% data-driven makes it very ESG compliant because uh, it doesn't matter if it's uh, a man or a woman who manages the company. It's just data-driven. From an investor point of view, well, okay, investors have to decide whether they should invest more in, Public markets or private markets, public equity, public bonds, private everything, infrastructure, real estate, hedge funds. Uh, So there's a lot they need to decide on. And actually, they should invest in a a little bit of everything. But they should weight things more if they like them more. My two favorites right now, if you want to know, are litigation finance. So it's got nothing to do with what we just said because risk is super low and performance is double digits. And for the exact same reasons, I love RBF. That's my, my, my other favorite. But as there are a lot of uh, uh, investment funds in litigation finance, so fine, we invested with those, but there are no funds in, in RBF. That's why we decided to create one. And so now we're gonna have the whole spectrum covered. So yeah, in, for, for investors, that's where rbf sits but i agree that for entrepreneurs they should use all the possible ways to to get finance and and definitely the regular private equity and venture capital venture debt way to 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 have a long relationship with their with the people who finance them because through rbf uh we finance companies for six to twelve months we can renew those financings, obviously, but it all depends on the data that comes through. So it's shorter term.
0: And with those words from Gilles De Melbusk, I want to close today's roundtable on winning with non dilutive financing. And we got through quite a bit, I think. Um, and I tried to take some notes here during, uh, during the conversation. And my key takeaways have been, first of all, that we have many instruments in Europe, just as they do in the US, of course, on uh to to fund with a non-dilutive approach. But it's good that we've got RBF and hybrid models like the one that uh that 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 uh Hemal of course represents here. Um to get that into the mix as well. I think that's incredibly powerful for us. Of course, when I we look at the state of the current market, it's obvious that the old ways of, of of financing in non-diluted fashion of 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 getting from basically the old legacy banks and 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 giving us loans and factoring and and then of course on the other side with uh with government financing those can be what a you know first part rather difficult to get and 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 also quite often um how should i put it uh, um not not accessible to most and if we look at the government side, maybe a bit, uh, a bit uh um, how should I say, not something you want to rely on too much, it can be very difficult uh uh to obtain if you don't have exactly the right profile and hit the right timings. Um so so seeing uh new players come into the market is of course incredibly powerful and good for all of us. Um so welcome <laughs> to to Lavenue and 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 White Star in this market. I think it's like amazing. And then I think I just want to close off with saying that obviously we 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 are seeing some very interesting investment trends which which as I think that the presence of steelstem my boss also shows here today um in the sense that 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 he is really representative of a growing interest in this space from from family offices and and and, and limited partners in general so I think that's that's incredibly incredibly good for us to showcase on this uh, on on this show so so really just want to close out with, with this. I don't want to go into the strategies of each speaker because while I could have done a, a lot of notes there, I don't think I would give them the same uh, credence as, as, uh, as, as what they just said. So if you enjoyed it, just rewind a bit and, and, and re-listen to that part. I hope we'll be seeing you for future webinars, future roundtables, and of course, also as a subscriber on EU.BC. Bye all, and thank you.
2: Tear down this
3: wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values.
2: United and determined, we can
1: serve as a model for other regions of the world.
2: The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings.
1: Let's start acting. acting. Acting.